Welcome to the second episode of Culture Pop Podcast. I'm your host, Allie, and you can find me on Twitter at Callie Allie Allie. What a great week for shows. The Leftovers got some crazy ideas stemming from that crazy white fella thinking. And on Better Call Saul, Jimmy and Kim have began their master plan to take Chuck down. I really missed you guys last week. I'm sorry I got caught up with a few other things. Uh, I'm really sorry about that, but that just means we have so much more to talk about today. So let's get to it. We missed last. I missed uh, talking about last week's episode, episode two of the leftovers. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and then I'll jump right into episode three, which was a ridiculous episode. Uh, so episode two, don't be ridiculous, opened with a very upbeat song, and I did a little research because I'm uh, wasn't familiar with that song, and the song is actually called "Nothing's Gonna Stop Me Now," which is the theme song from the nineteen uh, the 1990s American sitcom Perfect. Strangers, which I also didn't watch, uh, but I did get to know that Marklin Baker, who feature, who shows up in the show, uh, was actually an actor on that show, The Perfect Strangers. Uh, so we saw a lot of direct connections from the opening songs to this episode, which was a complete Nora episode, and it was fantastic. It was ten days until the anniversary of the sudden departure. Sudden departure. Our first scene was dude on the pillar. He decides to what looked like throw himself off. Did anyone else notice that the clock on the building read 420? (laughs) Uh, I did. When Nora interviewed Pillar Dude's wife, I didn't even know he had a wife. She claimed that she saw him like depart. She saw him leave this earth and that all his sacrifice and devotion to God had finally paid off. And then she also claimed that he just faded out after that. But it turns out that all of that was bullshit because everything mystical on this show has a very logical explanation. So the dude on the pillow actually had a heart attack and the wife brought him to Matt for a proper burial, Matt, Nora's brother. And she asked Matt not to say anything. And so Matt promised not to say anything. And, you know, I feel like Matt agreed because there's this obvious parallel between Matt's story and this pillar guy's story. I mean, pillar guy was up on this pillar and his wife decided that instead of begging him to come back, she was going to let him devote his life to whatever purpose he felt he needed to fill and she had a tent underneath the pillar and that's and he never even acknowledged her which is kind of how uh, Matt and Mary's relationship went where you know I mean Mary was in a coma for a while but now it's gotten to a point where Mary's back and Matt is acting a little crazy kind of the same not as crazy as Pillar Dude but I don't, I don't know if we're headed down that same road maybe so I know Matt feels for him and even uh, he he even said to Nora that You know, Pillar Dude deserves a legacy. I don't know if he was talking about himself or if he was talking about Pillar Dude. I don't know. We'll find out. I really loved Nora in this episode because she was hilarious. The moment she told John that she she's read the the book of Kevin in the bathroom and that it was super exciting. I was cracking up, man. That was great. Anyway, so yeah, Matt, Matt helped construe this story about Pillar Guy departing and all the townspeople began to pretty much embellish the story. This is exactly how religions start. Um, ex- these exaggerated stories become gospel for people to follow. And it's like a game of telephone and the story is always more exciting at the end than when it began. 
Uh, Nora got a uh, she she I don't know she got a little hostile towards the townspeople for uh, for praying you know to appraising this guy and she almost ended up telling them the truth that he actually had a heart attack because none of the townspeople actually knew yet what happened. Kevin cuts her off and he's like, "Hey, you're like the nicest person I know. Let's not do that. Let's let these people have their day and you know you you believe what you want to believe and you know let them believe what they want." Anyway, her cast was removed, and we get a glimpse of this Wu-Tang tattoo. That answers one of my questions from episode one, which was, why was Nora in a cast? And it turns out that she broke her own arm to cover up this tattoo that she had on her arm, which was creepy and weird. So she broke her own arm on the car door. Which is really weird. Uh, she denied it, of course, but we got confirmation later in the episode when Nora paid a visit to Erica in Austin, which is another one of my questions from episode one. Erica is now somewhere in Austin. You know, the conversation between these two is always so amazing. In season two, when they first met or when they, you know, when they were first feeling each other out, their relationship was very hostile. And but there was always some kind of connection because the uh, when Evie departed or quote unquote departed and or she actually just ran away to the guilty remnant and Nora's family actually departing. They share this loss together, but now they're friends. And the conversation this time was more about Nora confessing to Erica that this is why she broke her arm. She broke her arm to cover up this Wu-Tang tattoo. I started laughing because, yeah, getting a Wu-Tang tattoo is, is a little weird, but I mean, to each his own. But then she started talking about that she got that tattoo to cover up the tattoo of her kids' names, which was really sad. I really felt for her. And Erica, I'm sorry, Nora, asked Erica, how are you not going crazy after Evie's passing. And, you know, Erica just sprinkles some truth on her. And she reminded Nora that while, yes, Evie died, uh, she was still able to bury her daughter. And she was able to get that closure. She knows what happened to her daughter. And Nora, after all these years, has never had a chance to have any closure in regards to her family's departure. Then the two of them jump on Erica's trampoline to Wu-Tang's Protect Your Neck which was the perfect scene. So after era, after Nora gets her cast removed, she gets a phone call asking if she would like to see her children again, which is very weird, creepy and weird all at the same time. So it's the creepy dude on the other line actually even knows their names, which is Aaron and Jeremy. Uh, the creepy dude on the other end is actually Marklin Baker. As I mentioned earlier, he was one of the actors in the Perfect Strangers sitcom. Remember the opening song for the episode? Yeah, very weird. And it was actually him. He wasn't playing a character. He wasn't, like, playing a part. He was actually playing Marklin Baker from The Perfect Strangers uh, show in the show. Anyway, so he's, he was staying in St. Louis, but only for the day. He tells Nora that if, he, if she wants to see her kids ever again, that she'd have to go to him in St. Louis. So she immediately called into work. Uh, to see if they would authorize this travel to St. Louis. And her colleague, I guess that's who he is. I don't know. I don't I don't really think that's her boss or anything. But he tells her, yeah, as long as she, you know, gets the receipts and everything and expenses, all that. It was kind of like he was in on it. I think there's some kind of plan going on against Nora or something. But um, that was a very weird, the way he hung up the phone was like, yeah, she's going. And then the you know, no one else knew what he, what him and Nora were talking about because he was very vague. I mean, I have to rewatch the episode, but I think he was very vague about what he was talking to Nora about anyway. But it seemed like maybe the rest of the office was in on it, in on her going to St. Louis to go talk to Mark Lim Baker. Maybe it's this master plan that they're coming up with. As Nora is packing up to leave for St. Louis, Kevin walks into the room, um, I'm guessing to bag himself. 
And instead of telling Kevin about the phone call, Nora told Kevin that she had to travel for work and they have this weird I love you exchange as she's leaving. And I guess we don't see it, but I guess Kevin goes to um, suffocate himself. On her way to St. Louis, Nora hits a few bumps uh, on the road. She can't check into the airport because the kiosk was stuck on a screen. And the, the screen is asking was asking if, if she would be traveling with an infant. And then we get a flashback of Nora holding Lily for the first time. So in St. Louis, Nora met with the actual Markland Baker in a hotel. This show and hotels, man... <laughs> I had this weird feeling the whole time, like this cannot end well because she's in a hotel. What if what if Kevin shows up shooting out of the bathtub out of nowhere? And we've realized that this is this is all in Kevin's head. But that didn't happen. But anyways, shit was about to get crazy. And it did. This guy threw Nora's cell phone into the toilet. I would have choked him. I literally, I think I would have choked the guy. Mark then started talking about different types of radiation, specifically neutron, I guess. And apparently a bunch of neutron was found at the departure sites. So at where people departed, there were trace amounts of neutron. Um, and some Swiss scientists named it LADR, which stands for low amplitude Dessinger radiation, whatever that means. And those same scientists built a device using LADR to try to get to where the people de- the people who departed where they departed to. So essentially, they want to blast people with radiation and figure out where everyone else disappeared to. What if they disappeared into Oceanic Flight A15, and all those people are on the island somewhere in the Pacific? Hmm. Anyway, this guy just told her that some 119 people actually went through to the other side, you know, and that these people had to pass an IQ test just to qualify. He was trying to prove to her that these are smart people of sound mind who are willing to zap themselves. They're willing to take the chance. Um, But it could just mean that they're dead, which is actually the conclusion that Nora came to. But either way, Mark handed her a burner phone. <clears throat> Thanks, buddy. You you threw my other phone in the toilet, so it's the least he could have done for her. Uh, and he told her that she would be getting a call for a formal invite with instructions. I don't remember Nora agreeing to do this, but he, I guess, assumed that she said yes. I love how Nora tried to flip the script on this meeting and, t- you know, by telling Mark that he's suicidal. And, you know, but he, too, just like Nora, was one of four people who didn't depart. Everyone from the cast of his show, Perfect Strangers, departed except for him. And he actually had to fake his own departure until he arose again and and told everybody the truth. But he is just as sad as Nora is, and they're just trying to take control of their lives. Uh, Mark handed Nora a USB with all the 119 testimonials of those who quote-unquote crossed over. And Nora sat in her non-smoking hotel room, smoking a cigarette, and watching these uh, testimonials. And I actually noticed that the testimonials offered little to no actual evidence that these people actually went through. Um you know, the way Mark made it seem was that these people actually went through and then came back and then gave their testimonial. The video is actually just a bunch of people stating that they were of sound mind and they were willing to go to crazy town. The next day, Nora tried to leave for Kentucky, but the GPS in her car won't give her directions. It's just not it's mysteriously not working, um, which could just be a malfunction. And all these like 
technical difficulties that she's facing could just be that technical difficulties. Sometimes systems decide they don't want to work for a little while. It happens to all of us. So she decided to get to Kentucky the old-fashioned way with a map, an actual map. I didn't know those things still existed. I'm just kidding. I know they do. She arrived at a she arrived at a at a playground, uh, and she's sitting in her car. She's staring at this little girl, and the little girl is actually Lily, which answers my other question from episode one. Where was Lily? Lily is here at this park. <clears throat> Nora tried to save the day and give Lily her uh, stolen shovel back, uh, and Lily didn't recognize Nora. And Nora literally lost her shit. Uh, And then I lost my shit because Christine is back out of nowhere. Christine is actually Lily's mother, but she abandoned Lily in a bathroom stall in season one. So Tommy brought Lily to Kevin's front porch, and that's how Lily and Nora came to be. And so it turns out that Christine decided that she wanted her baby back. Uh, I just realized what I just said. (laughs) Um, So she filed for custody and she took Lily back. And Lily's name isn't actually Lily anymore. We don't know what it is, but that's actually what happened to Lily. Nora leaves and she heads over to Austin to go see Erica. On her way from the rental car place in the airport, Nora tried to use her prepaid parking pass, but her parking ticket doesn't work. And she reacted how any sane human would. Uh, She broke the lever and she drove through. Free parking for everybody. Nora was seriously losing it this episode. Maybe she just needed some meditation or Jesus. There was a great conversation that Tommy and Nora have in Nora's car after Tommy quote unquote pulls her over and Nora spilled her heart out and explained how much it killed her that Lily didn't even know who she was anymore. Uh, And Tommy explained that, you know, once he found out who his real father was, he just wished he never knew because he knew that he was where he belonged. Nora actually found no comfort in that, and it just made her more upset. And I don't think anything could have made her feel better because she, number one, she lost both of her kids, Aaron and Jeremy, and she also lost Lily. She can't have them back. You know, she's trying to, again, have some kind of control over her life. And this kid telling this to her is not helping. She then went to enlarge a photo of Pillar Dude and made sure that all the townspeople saw that he did not, in fact, depart and that his body was found. Needless to say, Pillar Dude's wife damned Nora to hell. Uh, and then and then Nora came home and Kevin was in his normal head and plastic bag routine. And he confirmed that he always takes the bag off before it's too late and that he doesn't actually want to die. Uh, she nodded in support and then she shows off her she showed off her Wu-Tang tattoo. Crazily enough, Kevin then declared that they should have a baby. And I think this is the scene where we actually get to know how much Kevin actually loves Nora because why would you try to bring a baby into this fucked up situation that you're in? You're sitting here literally suffocating yourself to death and Nora is contemplating zapping herself so that she could see her other kids. They are both so fucked up and there's no need to bring a baby into this world. But Kevin thinks it's the right choice. Um, And Nora pretty much tells him no 
by not saying no. Um, she just bursts into laughter. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Nothing's wrong with their relationship. I don't think they need a baby right now. So her burner phone rang and the person on the other line instructed her to go to Melbourne, Australia. If this show is in any way connected to Lost, I will lose my shit. Uh, so now it looks like Kevin and Nora are off to Australia. And while we're on the subject of Australia, episode two, just like episode one, ended in Australia. A few days away from the seven year anniversary of the sudden departure on October 15th. I actually didn't think about it, but October 14th in the States is actually October 15th in Australia because of the time change. Uh, so at least now we know that this is this sequence in Australia at the end of the episode is actually happening simultaneously to our friends in Jarden. So four women on horseback ask the chief of police what his name is, and it's Kevin, and but he doesn't look like our Kevin. And one of the women by the name of Grace Playford then repeated what seemed to be a Bible verse from the book of Kevin. He looked at them and raised his hand, but they did not wave in response. And so he touched the stone to his chest and jumped into the water. What? I think this is referencing back to the scene where Kevin tried to drown himself in the lake in Jarden. Uh, but before he jumped in, he made he made eye contact with Evie and her friends. He actually jumped in with a rock attached to his uh, leg. Then an earthquake emptied out the lake and Kevin ended up surviving. The way Grace made it seem and the way Grace said it made it seem like it was so much more than that. The story was embellished from the book of Kevin. Uh, we find out later in episode three that indeed the verse is straight from the unfinished book of Kevin. And like the rest of us uh, uh, during episode, the ending of episode two, Australian Kevin had no idea what this lady was talking about. Uh, so Grace asked Australian Kevin for his help with something, and he declined to help at all. And fucking Florence shoots him with a dart. Jesus, Florence. Australian Kevin woke up tied in some kind of plank over water. Actually, I think it's a seesaw. And Grace assured him that he was amongst friends. Um, I don't want friends like that, just so you guys know. I don't ever want friends like that. Please don't tie me up and um, try to drown me. And that's what these women did. They ended up drowning this man, uh, thinking he would come back to life. He doesn't. And when he doesn't, Kevin Garvey Sr. shows up, mind blown at the end of this episode. I actually had a thought after this episode, and it's that maybe Nora actually goes through the radiation. Go, you know, she goes, she goes through with the radiation thing since she is going to Australia. When we see her at the end of episode one as Sarah, it's not that she looks old. Maybe it's that she went through the radiation and it didn't work. And this is what the radiation did to her face. So maybe it's not that she looks old. It's just that she looks all messed up from that crazy radiation. I don't know. I hope we find out very soon. So on to episode three, Crazy White Fella Thinking. Um, it opened with another song. This song was a cover of Your Own Personal Jesus, a song originally by Depeche Mode, but this version, which was crazy and wacky, uh, actually done by Richard Cheese. And the episode opened with Kevin Garvey spying on a tribe in Australia. And he was listening to an audio cassette recording that he and Kevin Jr. recorded on a trip to Niagara Falls uh, sometime in 1981. We are later told that Kevin Jr. wanted to be a reporter as a kid, so that's why all these tapes have been recorded. He's got such a cute little voice. 
Uh, and then Kevin Sr. replaced that tape and then started recording the tribe that he was spying on, who were singing and dancing some kind of song, like rain dance song, I guess. And um, later that night, Kevin got himself arrested because he crossed sacred par- property, which is uh, what they called the song line. I don't know what that means yet. And he painted himself and dressed himself as a member of the tribe and, you know, um, did the song and dance that he had just learned. He tells the police, he told the police, I'm trying to prevent the apocalypse. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, so matter-of-factly, this guy's nuts. After he's released, he does, Kevin Jr., Kevin Sr. stopped at a local post office where he asked for the address of Christopher Sunday. He also received a package from Matt in Miracle, Texas. And inside that package was the goddamn sequel, uh, AKA the book of Kevin, neatly handwritten pages from the book of Kevin. Kevin is reading it. Kevin Sr. is reading it and he uh, rips out a page from the book. He paper clipped a um, $100 bill to it and then placed it inside, folded it up and placed it inside a National Geographic on the page where the map of Cairo is. In season one, I think Kevin Jr. takes Patty to Cairo, New York. So there's something going on with this Cairo thing, unless they're just trying to fuck with us. Kevin Sr. did all this ripping out of the page and stuff and sticking it into the um, National Geographic all before he proofread the book, marking it with a permanent, a red permanent marker. Uh, And he was not happy at all with this version because, as he tells Matt later on, that he had not been included in the book at all. And actually, when Kevin Sr. called Matt, this is all before Mary and Noah left Miracle because baby Noah and Mary answer the call. And so Kevin Sr. and Matt go back and forth on this phone call about the book. And um, Kevin Sr. mentioned that Junior is supposed to be a story in his book and not the other way around. So Kevin Sr., he's disguising himself as someone named Frank, uh, tossed the book out into the garbage during a rainstorm. So all the pages and all the ink is kind of smudging together now. And he headed to see Sharon to ask about Christopher Sunday's address. Midway through their conversation, this Sharon lady realized that Frank is actually Kevin and he is wanted by the police for quote unquote stealing from the indigenous. So Kevin managed to steal this file with uh, Mr. Sunday's address on it. And he heads to he headed to Mr. Sunday's house, Christopher Sunday. So in conversation with Christopher Sunday, Kevin then described his journey to Australia and how he took God's tongue, which is this crazy designer drug hallucinogen, um, which is how he ended up in a hotel room in Perth. Uh, Remember when Kevin Jr. was speaking to his dad, Kevin Sr., on a TV screen from International Assassin? Anyway, he started talking about a mystical chicken Tony named Tony on the TV screen. But wait, why did we why did we see him? And then why did Kevin Jr. see his father? But when Kevin Sr. is talking about what he saw, he saw a chicken named Tony. That's so weird. Uh, anyways, Tony the Chicken led Kevin Sr. to these tapes and, the you know, the tapes from Kevin and uh, from him and Kevin Jr.'s trip to Niagara Falls. Uh, and in the tape, Jr. tells Sr. Uh, to sing the Itsy Bizzy Spider to make the rain stop. And it actually worked. Uh, long story short, or long story long, Kevin Sr. 
told Chris Sunday that on the seventh anniversary, it will rain so much that everything will flood and that he has to sing to make it stop. Uh, his purpose in Australia has been to piece together all these different treble rain songs and that Christopher Sunday's song would be the last song. But before Mr. Sunday gives away his song, he asked Kevin Sr. to help fix, uh, I guess, an AC leak on the roof. But Kevin falls because he's he, he fell off the roof because he was startled by Sharon, who showed up to with, the, I guess, with the police to arrest Kevin. And uh, he fell right onto Christopher Sunday and ultimately killed him. So Kevin got kicked out of an ambulance with Christopher Sunday. He encountered a man who, before setting himself on fire, which was so crazy, the man asked Kevin if he would kill a baby if it would cure cancer. And then Kevin is like, no. And so he said, the guy says, that's what I said. And they didn't take me, which could mean one of two things or one of a few things, I guess. It could mean that he didn't depart, that everyone else departed or that he didn't get a job. Or maybe he also um, did the testimonial or he interviewed, had an IQ test for this radiation thing, the LADR, and they didn't take him because he was in a suit and it seemed like he was he was obviously interviewing for something. So maybe it was to interview to get to the other side to where these people departed. I don't know. This is all seeming very cultish. I'm not sure that could go either way. So on his search for water, Kevin Sr. looked to the sky, said asshole really loud and almost as if in response, it began to pour down rain. Then it ruined the tapes that he was listening to. Uh, so he he didn't have those tapes anymore that he was following. The next scene was nuts to me. He got bit by a snake he was going to kill and eat and then killed it right after he got bit by that same snake. <laughs> Dude is a badass. Anyway, Kevin almost died from that snake bite under a cross that he found. But a a person on a horse saved him and brought him to their home and he woke up in some teenager's room and he called Matt when he woke up and he found out that it had been three weeks since they had last spoke. This was probably around the time that Mary and Noah left Matt because Matt didn't look so good um, when he was talking to Kevin on the phone at this point. Uh, anyway, now it was only it's only eight days before the seven year anniversary. Matt asked for a photocopy of the book of Kevin and Kevin Sr. brushed it off and uh, he was like, yeah, I threw it away. Matt, as polite as can be, told Kevin Sr. to fuck himself. <laughs> that was a great scene. Outside of the house, Kevin found a group building an ark for the flood. Uh, after he swallowed all of the dog's arthritis pills, he snooped through a photo album. And inside were a bunch of photos of Sam and Grace Playford. Grace Playford from La the episode two, who killed the Australian Kevin. Anyway, Grace and her husband, Sam, adopted Liam Calloway on January 12th, 2001. And they also adopted Samantha Hag Hoggood uh, on August 6th, 2007. I'm not sure if any of this is uh, of any significance, but I wanted to throw that out there. Anyway, just in case, Kevin Sr. ultimately fell asleep after swallowing all those arthritis pills and when he woke up this is when I realized that he was in the house from the ending of last episode what we didn't see last episode was that I think fucking Florence shot him with a dart <laughs> and this was actually Grace's house there inside Grace's house 
And in conversation, Grace described the events of the sudden departure on October 15th in Australia. Uh, her entire family departed, and she was the only one of seven left behind, or so she thought. It turns out that her husband departed, and her five kids weren't sure if she was ever going to come back because she wasn't home. So they left the house, and somehow they died on you know in search of her in the outback. And so she placed a cross to mark where they had where she found them where they were where their remains were found and that's the same cross that kevin senior passed out on and when grace on her horse went to save him she found that he had a page of the book of kevin in his hand and so she took it and she read it and she took it as scripture and that's when she decided to go find australian kevin and drown him That's how the Book of Kevin made its way to Australia, which is crazy. But anyways, the poor woman thinks she's gone crazy. But Kevin Sr. fixed everything and confirmed that she just got the wrong Kevin. You know, this show always finds a way to leave me speechless. It looks like the next episode is back in Australia, but this time Nora and Kevin Jr. are there. I read a theory about these radiation people actually uh, just being the guilty remnant fucking with everybody. And what if Nora finally tells Kevin what she's up to in Australia? He decides that he should be the one to get zapped in her place because he starts buying into this, like, he can't die bullshit or whatever. I don't know. This show's awesome. Right, let's talk Saul, shall we? I didn't talk about this show last week. Uh, I really wanted to, but I didn't find the time to do the actual research. So we're on episode four now, but I'll give you a little summary of what episodes one through three were like before I dive into episode four. Episode one ended with Jimmy confronting his douchebag brother, Chuck, for recording him without his knowledge, uh, only to have Chuck frame him with Hamlin and some private investigator that he hired. I was really excited to see Jimmy explode on Chuck. Uh, Number one, I feel really bad for Jimmy. I know I'm not supposed to. There are no real good characters. When I say good characters, I mean, there's no... These are all bad people, uh, the characters themselves. But... I really feel for this relationship between Chuck and Jimmy because you can tell that Jimmy just really loves his brother and there's nothing he wouldn't do for him. And I think he just, when he loves, and he does this with Kim as well, when he loves, he just loves wholeheartedly and he gives it his all. And I I find that very honorable in him. And I think that's, that's why I sympathize with Jimmy you know, and all Chuck can do is be a giant ass all the time with his fake disease and waste of aluminum foil. I don't know. So Chuck told Jimmy that he was going to press charges and that Jimmy was going to go to jail, but only for his own good, because Chuck knows best. I can't believe Chuck told him to wait inside uh, while he waited for the while he Chuck told Jimmy to wait inside while the police were on his way to arrest him. My favorite is when Jimmy replied with one day you're going to get sick again and you're going to die alone. I remember thinking, finally, Jimmy has always been there for Chuck. So J- Chuck had it coming and he can literally suck it. I mean, I feel like this whole situation is what pushes Jimmy over the edge. And this is what gives his full transformation into Saul Goodman. This is where all of that begins. What stood out the most last season for me was the return of our favorite Pollos Hermanos store owner, Mr. Gus Fring. He is back. Well, not really back, I guess, because this is before Breaking Bad. But I'm sure 
all the fans like me are pretty excited to have him back. Episode three began with a Pollos Hermanos truck and a pair of um, shoes hanging from a telephone wire. Uh, but that's all we got. And then we cut to Mike, who answered a phone on the highway and only to be met up with Gus and his men. And I did recognize one of the one of Gus's men was one of those uh, creepy twins from Breaking Bad, the really silent, murderous ones. Yeah, pretty scary. And uh, Gus and Mike had a really interesting exchange at that point. And um, Gus really didn't want Salamanca dead, but you know he told Mike that he wouldn't stop him if he, if he stole from Salamanca. Um, so I think he's kind of hitting Salamanca where it hurts more. Killing him would be an easy way out. And later in the episode, Mike goes to visit a clinic to pick up a bag, yay big, as he puts it. Uh, and the pa- this package was drugs. I think it was cocaine or something. And Mike stuffed the, the bag of drugs into a pair of shoes. Let me stop there for a second and... Uh, like I said in the beginning, there are all the characters in this show are pretty bad people. But I feel like Better Call Saul versus Breaking Bad. In Better Call Saul, we see more of the, I guess they're trying to humanize these criminals. Gus Fring is a bad man, obviously. We are not rooting for him in Breaking Bad. We were actually rooting for his demise in that episode Face Off. But here we are in Better Call Saul world. And I don't know. I I kind of got the feeling in this scene that Gus is a good person. He's actually helping people by, I guess, supporting this clinic for people who don't have insurance or who don't have money for medical care. The doctor obviously works for Gus, but Gus is putting money on the table for them so they can keep this clinic up and running so that that little boy in this episode can have a lollipop when he's, you know, done with his visit and, and these people have health care. Uh, I don't know when this transition from from good Gus to villain Gus uh, happens. But at this point, and the same thing with Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, before his full full on transformation into Saul Goodman, we are seeing a side of him that I that honestly, I, I mean, I guess you get you get a, a glimpse of that in Breaking Bad, but he doesn't really love anybody in Breaking Bad. And here you see this this side of him that loves people. He loves Kim and he really loves his brother. And he doesn't have to say it. He shows it with his actions and and how he sticks up for them no matter what. And it's great. I think it's this is this is why these shows are so amazing and and why I love them so much. So Mike picks up these uh this package and he stuffs the drugs into a pair of shoes which are almost identical to the shoes in the beginning of the episode. He tried to throw them over a uh telephone wire to hang there. I always wonder how long that takes. Like, how many takes did that actually take? And I've always wondered why people actually do that. Why do you throw your shoes over a telephone wire? And now I'm thinking it's because of drugs. Is it always for drugs? I don't know. And how do people get them down? Anyway, uh, what a clever idea Mike had to frame Salamanca's men so when he stuffed the shoes with the cocaine or whatever that powdery stuff was, he shot a hole through the shoe. So just as Salamanca's truck was driving underneath the wire that the shoes were hanging on, the cocaine or powder sprinkled the truck. This truck was actually on its way back to to the border into the United States. Freaking genius, dude. Salamanca's ice cream truck then gets dinged and his boys are arrested. Later in the episode, Kim found out that Jimmy had been arrested and 
and immediately showed up to his hearing. Uh, this is a really low point for Jimmy, and I like that Kim, as distant as she may be with him at times, and as worked up as she is with work and stuff, in this episode we see her actually um, sleeping at the office, and she just goes to the gym in the morning really quick to take a shower. Or I guess she goes to the gym and then takes a shower and then heads right back to work. So this Mesa Verde, Mesa Verde, I'm saying it like such an American, Mesa Verde, (laughs) this uh, client that she's working with uh, is really taking up a lot of her time. But the minute she finds out that Jimmy is in trouble, she's there to the rescue. And and I really don't like to see Jimmy so defeated. It's, um, It's so much more fun to watch him, you know, when he's running all these scams and like getting get pulling a fast one on people that that's my favorite side of Jimmy even though it's not the best side of Jimmy in reference to the people around him but it's definitely one of my favorite sides of Jimmy but this defeated Jimmy really breaks my heart and I think he's just so he's also heartbroken because how could his own brother his own flesh and blood blood <laughs> his own flesh and blood how could he do this to him Kim at the hearing, she told the judge, I'm going to represent him. And Jimmy insisted on representing himself. And honestly, I think Kim is just so tired of fighting at this point. She didn't even say anything. She just left the courtroom. Even when Jimmy came back to the office to declare that he was going to fix everything, uh, she didn't even fight back then. And he was obviously very frustrated, but she was very short, one word answers. Later, we see that Chuck has hired a lawyer or a district attorney to help out with this whole Jimmy situation. I found it funny when the lawyer is interviewing Chuck. It almost seemed like Jimmy didn't do anything. Chuck didn't even accuse him of the what he confessed to on the tape. Chuck accused him of breaking and entering into his house, which is really weird. And then destruction of property, which was the tape that Jimmy uh, destroyed in the first episode. But other than that, I mean, that's his brother's house. And I don't know, I have a sister. And if I, I mean, she doesn't have her own place yet, but she lives with my parents. And even if I don't have a key, which I do, but even if I didn't have a key and I broke down the door, which I don't know why I would break down the door, but I mean, if they didn't let me in and I broke down the door, I don't think they would press charges against me because we are family. And sometimes family goes crazy and you just have to put up with it because... We can't choose our family. We can only choose to love them. Anyway, it's really frustrating to see Chuck do this to his brother. And I know Jimmy's no angel, but you know what? Like I said, he's his brother. When Chuck is talking to the DA here, it didn't seem like Chuck really wanted to go to trial with this. It seemed like he wanted to get what he wanted done and then move on from from all this. Um, But it also seemed like he was planning something else, like another scam on Jimmy. You know what? I don't even know with Chuck anymore. I can't with him. At Jimmy and Kim's office, there was a great scene that reminded me of the first season of Better Call Saul. In the first season, Jim and Kimmy, before they were dating or before they were anything, they both worked at Hamlin and McGill, and they would always split a cigarette outside in the parking garage and they would talk and shoot the shit for a little while talk shop or whatever and then they would they would almost always talk about chuck the conversation would always turn to that and this time is no different and this scene here in episode three it's awesome and i feel like it really brought them back to that special part of their relationship you know they realized how far i mean for me i've realized how far they've come it turns out that jimmy found out that chuck wants jimmy to confess to the felony so he'll have no jail time which is great 
great, but the only condition is that Chuck wants the confession to be sent immediately to the New Mexico Bar Association, meaning that Chuck just wanted Jimmy to lose his law license. So this is this is his ultimate plan. I don't know if it's smart of Chuck to show all his cards right now because this this puts Jimmy in a position where he's got the upper hand and now he can make a decision based on, you know, what he knows Chuck wants from him, which is his his law license um, because he's a jealous asshole. And, you know, I knew Chuck had something up his sleeve, but this is crazy, man. This is like his career. And what is Jimmy going to do after this? He d- he can't do anything else. And since the beginning, Chuck has never been on Jimmy's side. He has always put him down. And I think at the end, Jimmy and Kim agree to take this to trial. I'm hoping this is the end of Chuck because I can't stand this character. Uh, Even though it's that being said, it means that he's doing a fantastic job of being a bad guy because I really want him out. (laughs) Not so much dead, but, you know, maybe in jail or moves away so that he can't bother Jimmy anymore. So on to episode four, named Sabrosito. Don Eladio, which is a drug kingpin out in Mexico. We are at his house, if you remember from Breaking Bad. So it started there, and this is actually a flashback of Hector Salamanca competing for the business of Don Eladio, and his competitor is actually Gus Fring and Los Pollos Hermanos boys. They both want to kind of sell their product to Don Eladio, and in this this scene here, Don Eladio actually insulted Hector and called Hector's deals very small compared to Fring's neatly organized business. It wasn't very organized. It didn't look clean. So Don Elario pretty much told Hector, you know, you could learn a little bit from, you know, Mr. Gus Fring. And uh, you could see it in Hector's face that he was very much insulted by this. And he did not like that at all. So this scene takes place before Better Call Saul and somewhere in the Breaking Bad universe. And I love that they're fusing the two worlds together. I think it's really cool. So Salamanca, uh, we're now in present time. Salamanca paid a visit to Los Pollos Hermanos with uh, Nacho and another one of his men. Uh, I do remember him from Breaking Bad, but I don't remember his name. I don't know why Hector is so mean to poor little assistant manager Lyle. Uh, He was only doing his job. I don't know. Uh, So Lyle told Salamanca that Fring was not available and that he could, I guess, leave a message for him or that he could sit, he could eat in the restaurant and wait for him, but that he wasn't there at the time. Gus was making his rounds at the local fire department. So here he is uh, supporting, you know, doing something good again. Last episode, it seemed that we saw that he was a donor to this clinic somewhere in Mexico. And, you know, now he's making friends with the people at the fire department. I'm guessing he's donating something from, I mean, he's feeding the, the firemen. So I guess that's a, you can count that as a donation. Salamanca inside the restaurant while Gus is not there, then decided, being that he had to wait for Gus, he decided that smoking a cigar in the kitchen or by the kitchen was a really good idea, which is a major health code violation, as uh, as Lyle said. Um, He also stole a cup of soda, and that is grounds for jail time, buddy. Anyway, Gus came back and sent all his employees home for the day. PTO, baby. Uh, He sent them home for the day and and told them, you know, come back tomorrow. Uh, We will 
continue normal business hours tomorrow, but he sent everybody home. Uh, and Lyle was a very loyal employee, like, hey, are you sure you know you want to send us home? Can we help with this? Who are those people? I liked Lyle. I thought Lyle was a really good employee. That speaks a lot to how Gus runs his business and the type of person that he is and the type of the type of manager that he is. And we see it later when he comes back the next morning to talk to his employees and he gives that speech and it was very much, it was like a Braveheart speech, you know, like I will, you know, he was telling them that he would help them if they needed any counseling for the trauma because of those those mean men that came the day before uh, and he was going to pay them an entire 24 hours each of overtime, which is really awesome. So in Gus's office, when Hector and Gus meet, Hector requests that Gus delivers for him. I think he knows at this point that something happened with his truck, his delivery truck from Mexico to the States. Mike shot down the shoe with the cocaine and then his boys got arrested. So that delivery was not done. And I don't think, I I honestly don't think at this point that, that Hector thinks that Gus had anything to do with it, only because I think Gus is very vengeful and he's just a mean person. If he had known that Gus had any connection to what happened to his delivery truck, his ice cream delivery truck, this scene would have been a, a little more bloody or bloodier or a little more menacing. I don't, this is little compared to what I think he would have done had he known. Oh, Gus is like, oh, did the cartel approve of this? Like, did our boss approve of this? Like, I don't work for you, Hector. I work for the cartel and you can't tell me what to do. But it seems like Hector has been in the business a little longer than Gus has been. So um, I think he's pulling seniority here a little bit. I don't know. It, it really kind of pissed me off. Remember, I said this before, but last season um, in Breaking Bad, I was definitely not rooting for Gus. And now I'm definitely rooting for Gus to get rid of Salamanca. But we know ultimately what happens to Hector and Gus in the Breaking Bad universe, which is after this. So uh, it's kind of cool to see what happened before, but I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get to see this backstory before we got into the Breaking Bad universe. Universe. We get to Jimmy later in the episode, um, kind of halfway through the episode. We are back at Jimmy and uh, Chuck's situation. So in classic Slip and Jimmy fashion, Jimmy and Kim are working on a plan to take Chuck down. So what happened is J- Kim switched out Chuck's handyman for the one and only Mike. And because Mike, the handyman, had to use power tools inside of Chuck's house, Chuck was unable to stick around and watch Mike. Uh, And what Mike was doing was actually taking photos of the quote unquote damages to Chuck's property. And he was also taking pictures of the, I guess, the electricity usage uh, inside of Chuck's house. His disease just comes and goes when he fucking pleases. I love how Mike was uh, reading Handyman magazine after his meeting with Jimmy to exchange the photos. Anyway, so we we jump to the deposition scene where they're discussing the terms of this agreement between Chuck and Jimmy uh, for for Chuck pressing charges, I guess. So Miss Hay, which is Chuck's DA or the DA, was really nice to Chuck in this scene. You know, she asks how Chuck is doing and that she mentions that she had someone in her family who also had a similar condition. But and I love how they all walk in and instead of being like, hey, guys, what's up? How 
how are you? I mean, I know this is like a shitty situation, but they're all like, Howard? Kim? Anyway, Jimmy and Kim are not buying into this. So uh, Miss Hay ran through the stipulations of the bargain uh, and they went back and forth about whether the property was property being the tape uh, that Jimmy with Jimmy's confession on it, whether that property was damaged or destroyed, which I thought was really funny. And at the end, Miss Hay even had the balls to ask Jimmy to apologize to Chuck. I was really not liking this lady. I I mean, I get it. She doesn't know the whole back. She didn't know the whole backstory, but this was not cool for me. Kim's face just read sadness the entire time as Jimmy was uh, apologizing to his brother and I don't think she can actually she could actually deal with this shit either and I think also she has something out for Chuck Chuck hasn't been very nice to her either and I think Chuck has been a little mean to her because she is taking Jimmy's side and you know he doesn't like that at all after the meeting, Kim calls Howard and Chuck on their bullshit. By the way, they're standing outside in the hallway right under these fluorescent lights. And Chuck was fine. I didn't see him flinch. I didn't see him, like, you know, get a little antsy. None of that. Because this is what I was talking about. How he he was talking about how he was going to bring Jimmy down. So his illness uh, just wasn't there at the moment. Because he was so excited about how he was going to take his brother down. And take his brother's law license. And he finally would get what he wanted. It especially seems to go when he's being a complete jerk to his brother. When Kim reunites with Jimmy, who's waiting downstairs, they, you know, they're walking down the hallway and they're like, bingo. Like, did he buy into it? And and it seemed like they have planted yet another seed in the plan to take Chuck down. Which brings me to Mike's meeting with Gus. That scene is where Gus really showed his true colors. And this is where we start to see the mean side of Gus. Uh, he claimed that a bullet to the brain would be far too humane in regards to to getting rid of Salamanca. So he wants something more torturous for him. I guess torturous is a bad word. Maybe something more slow and more burning. Um, Maybe, and we, as we know from the Breaking, or if you don't know, but in the Breaking Bad universe, uh, Salamanca is still alive. Uh, He does not die in the uh, Better Call Saul universe, but he is in a wheelchair and he cannot speak. So something has been done to him, and I'm guessing it's Gus's fault that he is uh, paralyzed and, I guess, mute because he can't talk. He uses this little bell. Um, And I'm really excited to see what that is. I'm just kind of nervous because we do see in the Breaking Bad universe how bad Gus actually can be. So I'm excited to see what happens next episode, episode five. I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. I would love to hear your feedback. Uh, Send me an email. Give me a call. Don't call me. (laughs) You guys don't have my number. Again, you can tweet me at CallieAllieAllie. And my blog is AllieAllieLately.com. That's Allie spelled A-L-Y. I promise I'll be here next week. Until then, talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye.